We're perched high on a bridge above a moat. We're leaving behind us the calm of the gardens surrounding the Imperial Palace. We're looking at yet another busy road. And we're surrounded by sites that grapple with the complicated history of modern Imperial Japan. A national cemetery for the unidentified dead from World War II. A memorial museum dedicated to the lives of ordinary people during the 20th century. And a Shinto shrine, which deifies those who fell in Japan's modern wars, including some convicted as war criminals. Welcome to Historicity, where we turn back time to see how cities got to be the way they are. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years. But when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside, walk the streets and pick apart the layers. And I'm Jelena Sofronievich. I'm fascinated by the way that history and politics and culture intersect. How our imperial pasts have left their trace on our material present, not least in the streets. In this walk, we're trying to understand Imperial Tokyo, the way the city has served to build a nation and an empire in modern times, and the way both city and country have made use of the emperor. To do this, we're walking through and around the palace at the centre of the city. As ever, a couple of notes before we get underway. We've designed these walks to follow on foot, but we know that you might not be on the streets. You can download maps and transcripts from the episode notes. If you're on the street, you'll find that we're quite fast walkers. But of course, you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself. In this first episode, we're tracing the transformation of an early modern castle into a modern imperial palace to serve as the physical centre of the city and the symbolic centre of the country. We'll also see how the monarchy has changed over time, from the icon of an imperial cult to a symbol of peace and democracy. We're beginning at the northern end of the vast plaza in front of the imperial palace. It's about half a kilometre or so west of Tokyo Station. We'll meet you there. So here we are in the vast plaza in front of the Imperial Palace. Looking back towards Tokyo Station, there's a sea of tall buildings. Turning around towards the palace, there's a sea of green. For some, this empty space at the heart of the city is puzzling. Here's Roland Barthes trying to decipher what he calls an empire of signs in 1966. The city I'm talking about... Tokyo, offers this precious paradox. It does possess a centre, but this centre is empty. The entire city turns around a site both forbidden and indifferent, a residence concealed beneath foliage, protected by moats, inhabited by an emperor who is never seen, which is to say, literally, by no one knows who. Daily, in their rapid, energetic, bullet-like trajectories, the taxis avoid this circle, whose low crest, the visible form of invisibility, hides the sacred nothing. One of the two most powerful cities of modernity is thereby built upon an opaque ring of walls, streams, roofs and trees, whose own centre is no more than an evaporated notion, subsisting here not in order to irradiate power, but to give the entire urban movement the support of its central emptiness, forcing the traffic to make a perpetual detour. 
So far and no further, Roland Barth. In fact, though, once you stop thinking that Japanese cities should look like European ones and try to understand them on their own terms, it's simple enough. On one hand, you've got a palace. It started life as a castle on the bluff we see over to our right, maybe in the 12th century, more likely in the 15th. And then it was built up with more moats, stone walls, and it was extended over towards the left in the 17th. We'll tell this story in the first half of this episode. Then, in the late 19th century, the shogunate falls, the emperor is restored... And he moves to Tokyo, and the castle becomes a palace. The emperor arrives here, progressing over the bridge far to our left. Two bridges. They were made into stone and iron versions in the 1880s. And this plaza where we're standing now becomes a ritual stage for subjects to demonstrate their respects. For example, when the Showa emperor, Hirohito, dies in 1989. On the other hand, behind us, you've got Maruno Uchi. 500 years ago, it was underwater. It was filled in from the end of the 16th century as the castle is being built up. Its name means it's within the outer wall, the outer moat of the castle. And it's an area that gets filled up with lords here to pay their respects to the shogun. That's taken over by the government in the late 19th century. And this story we'll come back to in the last episode of this walk. But now we're going to the bit of the castle that was turned into the east gardens of the imperial palace and opened to the public. We're going to leave the moat on our left and the palace hotel on our right, and we're going to enter the gardens through Otemon, the great gate. So we're walking alongside this busy road now. You can hear it in the background. We're nearly at the bridge leading into Otemon, the Great Gate. And we're just by the Palace Hotel on the right here. Pre-war, before World War II, this was actually the forestry office of the Imperial Household Agency. In 1945, it's requisitioned by SCAP, the Allied authorities then governing Japan, as a hotel for visiting foreigners who are beginning to flock to Japan. But we're continuing on just a short way to this bridge, which will lead us into the old castle grounds. So here we are with our back to Otemon, the Great Gate, and we're looking at Otemachi, the town in front of the Great Gate. A thousand years ago, we'd have been close to the location of a village. It was called Shibasaki. It was at the mouth of a river, the Hirakawa. And that's here from around the 8th century. The village is a really important distribution hub, even though it's small. It's at the mouth of the main river, which is draining this huge plain on which Tokyo sits. A few centuries later, warriors start getting interested. There's some fortification here from the 12th century, probably not on this site. Then there is a castle here, a small one from the 15th century, as Japan descends into 150 years of civil war. It's a strategic site, even if we can't quite see it today. It's on the outcropping of the plateau, overlooking a river valley and the bay beyond it. Still, though, 500 years ago, at the end of the 16th century, there's not much to look at. The castle's pretty dilapidated. There are about 100 houses with thatched roofs located just to the north, where the river branches. To the east, there's some low wetland, and to the south, there's a cove. The bay comes this far in, and there are sandbars offshore. Right at the end of the 16th century, 
Tokugawa Ieyasu, a warlord on the make, is given this land. And he begins to build up the castle in 1593. He starts rerouting the rivers, reclaiming land, building up the town. He needs commoners to supply him with the stuff you need to maintain your military position. And he rebuilds and he extends this castle as his redoubt. But he wins everything just a few years later in 1600 at a climactic battle, Sekigahara. Three years after that, he's granted the title of Shogun, the barbarian subduing generalissimo. And he moves things up a gear, even though the country is no longer at war. He fills in the cove. He forces his warlord allies and, importantly, rivals to become subordinate to him in part by supplying huge stones from their domains, which we can still see in front of us, to build up these walls around the castle. He also forces them to live here half the time. So you have a castle surrounded by 16 kilometers of walls, modeling his claim to authority. And that is surrounded in turn by a fast growing city. Here in Otemachi, you've got the mansions of the lords who've supported him, who used to fight him. They're also on the highland behind the castle, and you've got commoners further east and in the valleys. Construction continues. The castle is only finally finished in 1637 by his grandson. The irony, of course, is that the castle is being built up when peace has broken out. What was a functional site to defend his power has become a symbolic projection of his authority. We in England still see spurs on the uniforms of cavalry officers, even though they're not sitting on horses, even if they're surrounding the Queen as she lies in state. By the late 19th century, though, the castle is dilapidated and it's turned to a new use. The emperor moves in. He moves up from Kyoto. There's no more use for the military lords either, but the land right next to the palace where we are, Otemachi, is valuable real estate. So it's repossessed by the government in the 1870s, and then it's sold. In the century and a half since, this area around the castle has become a citadel of state and corporate power. We'll pick up the story in more detail in the next episodes of this walk. But right here, where we are in Otemachi, before the Great Gate, you have three out of the five main newspapers in Japan. You also have NTT, the National Telephone Service. It was a state monopoly in 52. It was privatized in 1985 as neoliberalism begins to bite. It's the third largest company in Japan after Toyota and Sony. It's the fourth largest telecom company in the world. It's number 55 on the Fortune Global 500. This is still a center of power. We're turning our back on the town in front of the Great Gate, crossing the bridge and passing into the castle. So we've come through a first small gate to the castle and immediately on our right we can see a much bigger gate. In early modern Japan, you don't get a direct line to the ruler. It's a bit different from early modern European palaces, perhaps. But it's a little like medieval English castles. These places are about defense. We're now in San Nomaru, the third innermost ward of the castle. Nowadays, you've got imperial administration over on your left, including the police who are guarding it. 
You've also got some tennis courts in there so that they can keep fit. On our right, we've got a hospital. We've also got the San Nomado Shozokan. It's the imperial collections. There are nearly 10,000 rather good pieces in there. And straight ahead of us, we have another couple of low walls telling us we're passing through another gate. Beyond those walls on the right, we've got a small little guardhouse. And as we come up alongside it, this time on our left, we've got a much bigger set of walls. Passing through these, we're now in Ninomaru, the second innermost ward of the castle. There's another much bigger guardhouse over on our left. That one's for a hundred warriors serving the shogun. This is where the heirs of the shogun had their palace. Straight ahead, opposite the guardhouse, two more huge walls. We're going for the gap between them. Another guardhouse on our right, some manicured pine trees straight ahead of us, in front of an even bigger wall, and the slope curves left and starts heading up. Now it curves right, it's still heading up the slope through another pair of huge walls, and finally we're in the innermost ward of the castle. So here we are on top of the hill. This is where the shogun had his own residence and at the far end, the castle keep. There are 11 keeps in total. Around the walls here, there are 15 defense houses, more than 20 gates leading into this area. But 50 years after the beginning of the regime, the keep is destroyed by fire. 200 years after that, the residence goes in another fire and neither were reconstructed. Still, some things remain. We're on top of the hill, so this was a good place to see things from. There are two buildings here from which you could see Fuji, Fujimi Yagura, Fujimi Tano. You could also see the sea from the slope on the far side of the lawn, Shiomizaka. The sea was much closer to the castle in those days. Nowadays, good luck seeing Fuji or the sea, given all the tall buildings hereabouts. Instead, we have a vast open lawn with some flowering fruit trees over on our left. We're going to aim for the foundation of the keep, which we can see at the far end of the lawn. We'll meet you there. Historian Hidenobu Genai has long emphasised that you need to walk a city if you're going to understand the relationship between its buildings and the landscape. Here, he suggests that the castle has never been quite as central to the city as we might think. For the people of Edo, castle of Edo was a very important and object to respect. But looking many um, pictures, drawings of the townscape of Edo, it is difficult to find one picture with castle in the middle, always in behind. Main actor can be Nihonbashi, Nihonbashi Street, canal, and activities of citizens. Castle of Shogun was respected, surely, but always behind. For example, Hiroshige's very famous ukiyo-e around Nihonbashi Bridge, fish market, and canal, and many boats, 
which bring materials and warehouses and Fuji Mountain is symbolic. They didn't want to draw mainly a castle. This position is very meaningful. Still now, uh, for maybe many, many Japanese people have a mentality to respect uh, Imperial Palace and of course family, but uh, not directly uh, main actor. Japanese society become very business society. So value of economy is dominant, especially in after Second World War. Central area became business center. Private companies, developers, also government try to have more volume, height of buildings to have an important position in the world, especially between Asian cities. Castles and palaces aren't as central as they seem, but they do tell us something about the city and the country in which we find them, and how it's changed over time. We're now standing next to more huge stones, what used to be the foundation of the castle keep. It was an impressive building, five storeys, 51 metres tall. It was the tallest castle in Japan, ornamented with gold. The shogun can't have his rivals building higher keeps. But it only lasted 50 years. That hasn't stopped people in the present day wanting to rebuild it as a symbol of the city. The Rebuilding Edojo, the Edo Castle Association, was founded in 2004 to promote historically correct reconstruction. And over to the right, a very different building, an octagonal blue and white building. This is the Imperial Household's Music Department and Peach Blossom Concert Hall. It was constructed in 1966 for Empress Kojun, the wife of Showa, who we might know as Hirohito. So far, we've seen how a medieval castle became a seat of power for an early modern shogun. In the second half of the episode, we'll explore what happens to the emperor once he's moved here in modern times. Before that, we're going to take a break. Welcome back. In the first half of this episode, we've seen how Edo Castle was built up and some of it burned down in the 17th century. Now we're going to see what happens to the castle when it's turned over to the emperor in the late 19th century, and some parts of it are turned over to the military. To start telling that story, we're going to leave the keep of the castle on our right and head downhill towards the northernmost gate. So we've just walked through another gate. That was Kitahanebashimon, the northernmost gate to the innermost ward of the castle. And we're suspended on a bridge over a moat with more huge stones all around. But we haven't left the castle yet. 
We've got a busy road in front of us, and on the other side, we've got Kitanomaru, the northern ward of the castle. In a moment, we're going to head into it via the pedestrian bridge we can see to our left. But we're just pausing here a moment. Kitanomaru, the northern ward, was originally a site of a shrine to the deity of this whole region. Then, in the early modern period, it became a residence for members of the shogun's family. After the great fire in the middle of the 17th century, it was used as a firebreak. Fast forward 200 years, though. After World War II, it becomes a public park. And like public parks in other cities in other parts of the world, you begin to see cultural institutions. You can think of South Kensington in London or Central Park in New York. Over to our right, we've got a low-slung white modernist building. That's the National Museum of Modern Art. It's the first art museum as opposed to universal museum in the country. It was established in 1952. That building is designed by Mike Kawakunio, who'd worked with Le Corbusier in Paris before the war. It's been redesigned since. Next to it, we have the National Archives, established in 1971, and behind them, a science museum, even earlier, opened in 1964. But this northern ward of the castle, now a national park, also contains other stories about what happened between the fall of the Tokugawa in 1868 and peace breaking out in 1945. During that period, the emperor was a focus of a national cult. But to find those stories, we're going to cross the pedestrian bridge. Take the stairs up and over, we'll meet you on the other side. As we make our way out of the palace into the northernmost part of the castle, it's clear that there's a difference between the hill on which it was built and the lower, flatter land closer to the bay where we started. Here's Hidenobu Jinai again, explaining how topography determined the social geography of the early modern city. Topographical condition of Tokyo is very particular, very interesting, curious. We have uh, seven hills from North Ueno to West and South toward Shinagawa. So we have also many valleys. These seven hills are similar to the case of Rome. <laughs> this western part is called Yamanote. Yama means mountain, hill. This area was lived samurai class, especially daimyo. Daimyo is highest samurai. They had local castle in each prefecture of Edo era. But politically, they had to live here with family. So wife, children lived in Edo, not in local town. Main actor of Yamanote was samurai class. But to support samurai life, merchants and craftsmen, common people lived in the lower part, valley, and looking eastern part, we say Shitamachi, downtown. Shita is low, machi town. So uh, it is similar to downtown in the Western world. We'll see this contrast between the hills and the lowlands again and again in our walks throughout Tokyo. We'll explore Shitamachi, downtown, in commoners' capital. And we'll be seeing more of Yamanote in our walk on Neo Tokyo where we look at the west side of the city. But wherever we go, we'll find shrines, 
and the complicated history of modern Japan. So we're coming off this busy road now and curving round on a path to our left. We can hear the birds in the trees around us and we can see a red brick building in front of us. But as we come towards that red brick building, we can also see a statue of a very impressive looking military gentleman on his horse to our left. This is Kita Shirakawa Yoshihisa. He was born in 1847, just as things were beginning to fall apart for the shogunate. When things really fall apart in 1867, he becomes the chief priest of a temple, Kaneji, we're going to see in another episode. But he backs the Tokugawa, he backs the other side as the shogunate family collapses. Then, when things have settled down a bit, he's recalled to Tokyo and he becomes the head of a collateral branch of the imperial family. He trains as a soldier in Germany. He becomes a major general quickly in 1887. And when war breaks out with China in 1894, he goes to Taiwan. But pretty quickly, he contracts malaria and he dies. And he's enshrined as a kami, as a deity, both in Taiwan and in Yasukuni where we're going to end this episode. And then in front of us, we've got this red brick building. After the revolution in the late 19th century, this area is turned into a base for the Imperial Guard. It was established in 1867. It's the regiment closest to the emperor. It's slightly exempt from other kinds of military authority. And this building in front of us was their headquarters. There were other barracks and other buildings surrounding it. At the end of the Second World War, most of those buildings are removed. But this remains. It's a historic structure. And in 1977, it's turned into the crafts annex of the Museum of Modern Art, which we've just seen down by the busy road. The Crafts Museum moved out. It was put out into the provinces in 2020. And now this is standing empty. It's not going to be knocked down. It's occasionally open. But we're going to leave these markers of Japan's military past behind us and walk through this garden, listening to the birds. We're aiming for the cafe next to the Nippon Budokan. It's about half a kilometre away, down these garden paths. Sociologist Shunya Yoshimi has always argued that we need to understand modern Tokyo not just as an artefact of Japanese history, but alongside other global cities, as a creation of industry and empire. There's some kind of commonality between London, New York, Tokyo, and maybe Paris or some other cities, because all of this, this metropolis is a center of modernity. In the process of the 18th, 19th century, all of these uh, big cities became bigger and bigger because of modernization. And this process of modernization is strongly connected with colonialism and imperialism. So London became very big and very important because of British Empire. And Tokyo became very big and important because of Japanese Empire. And today, uh, New York may be very important. Already in the 18th, 19th century, it was a city of one million. So it's very big. But especially and uh, also in the sense of population, uh, Tokyo became and expanded after the 19th century. One of the major reasons about the concentration of this city came from after the Meiji Restoration. So in Edo era, each region in, in, in Japanese archipelago is very much dispersed. And uh, it was, of, of course, capital, but not so much concentrated uh, as today. 
But at the end of 1868, and Satsuma and Choshu military kick out the Edo shogunate, and they change this Tokyo. So in this process, the center of this city has changed from northeast to southwest. So Edo Castle changed to Imperial Palace. But not only that, but also the major military field and the military institution and bureaucratic administrative institution, all, this, all these things, they start to concentrate in south of Imperial Palace. So uh, this process is connected with or based on imperial expansion of modernity. We'll see many more remnants of the military presence in the modern city in our walk Neo-Tokyo, but there is still some to find here closer to the palace. So we've made our way to the northern end of this Kitanomaru National Garden and we're tucked behind the cafe and we're looking at a stone monument here. This is one of the few surviving monuments to the first regiment of the Imperial Guards. We're also looking across the road at a huge structure. This is the Nippon Budokan. It was built for the 1964 Olympics as an appropriate venue for traditional martial arts as opposed to modern sports. Judo had been approved by the Olympic Committee in 1961. The building itself is actually modelled on one of the oldest buildings in Japan, the Horyuji Yumedono, down in Nara. Fuji was meant to be the inspiration for the ridgeline here, and it remains the place where all the traditional martial arts have their national championships. But it holds other things too. The Beatles played here as the first rock group in 1966. Most recently, it held the funeral of Abe Shinzo, a controversial former prime minister. He was gunned down at a campaign rally and his funeral was held here with international dignitaries in attendance. But the event was controversial too. It cost 12 million. It was opposed by 67% of the population. But we're going to exit the garden now. We're exiting via Tayasumon, the northernmost gate of the original castle. It's one of two survivors from the 1630s. It's also a famous cherry tree spot. So we'll head for the gate we can just see on the other side of the Budokan. So here we are finally outside the castle, on the bridge looking down towards a busy road on a steep slope. Originally the slope was even steeper, it's called Kudanzaka, nine step slope. It had a staircase, it marked the boundary between the lowlands to the east of our castle, to our right, Shitamachi, downtown, from the uplands to our west, to the left, where the warriors lived, Yamanote the hand of the hill. This particular area was occupied by direct retainers of the shogunate, and it remains still today a prestigious residential and business address. The road, though, is more recent. It was created after the 1923 earthquake as part of a 500 million yen recovery plan. Doesn't sound like a lot of money, but it was then. That plan included, importantly, arterial roads to free traffic to move through the city. 
Fifty years later, the road itself provides cover for two subway lines built in the 1970s. But this place where we now stand is notorious as somewhere Japan wrestles with the complicated burdens of its modern wars, which were all waged in the name of the emperor. Here we have three institutions within a stone's throw of us. The least controversial, tucked in fact behind the garden we've just left, is the Chidori Gafuji National Cemetery. That houses 352,297 unidentified dead from World War II. It was completed in 1959. More problematic, just to our right, a round building just down the slope is the National Showa Memorial Museum. That only opened in 1999, ten years after the emperor's death. It was a response to lobbying from the Association of the Japan War Bereaved Families, who wanted an account which showed how they too had suffered and were victims of the wars waged in the emperor's name. Most problematic, or charged perhaps though, directly in front of us on the other side of the road is Yasukuni Shrine. The shrine was originally founded in 1869 to commemorate those who died in the emperor's service, initially in the war that brought the modern state into being, then in wars against China in the 1890s, against Russia in the 1900s. These are the wars that established Japan's overseas empire. Most controversially, though, it also enshrines those who fell in the Asia-Pacific War, which we know as World War II. So Yasukuni today includes nearly 2.5 million men, women, children and pet animals as divinities. But that number includes over 1,000 convicted war criminals, including 14 Class A offenders who were enshrined in the late 70s. And so Yasukuni has become a lightning rod for debates about the war. The emperor himself stopped visiting in 1975. But politicians from the Liberal Democratic Party, the LDP, which has ruled Japan more or less continuously since the 1950s, continue to visit. And each time they do, they still provoke protests from Korea and China and in the eyes of the world. We're going to walk over the road in front of us now, therefore, and turn left on the other side through the first of the Tori gates that marks the entrance to Yasukuni Shrine. Before we dive into Japan's military history, it's useful to step back and remember why walking through a city today helps us to understand this complexity. Here's Shunya Yoshimi again. Throughout the modernization and throughout the neoliberal capitalism era, we only pursued high speed, including the rapid economic growth era. The people want to speed up the city. So that is why they constructed Tokyo Expressway and also the Shinkansen and also 5G and such kind of the huge internet, huge information system. More and more, the people who are moving is detached from the city. Because if you move one place to the other place uh, by subway, you cannot see what is happening in the city, overground. I think that is not so sustainable, the relationship between the people who are moving and the people who are sitting or enjoying within the restaurant. It's more cultural and more enjoyable and more the quality of life. And not only for that, but also 
such kind of the connection between the, the people and the resident and the passengers is more resilient, I think. It's better for the future city. Slowing down helps us see that even somewhere like Yasukuni Shrine holds more than one story and for many sustains their life in the city. So we've headed over the pedestrian bridge spanning the busy road leading down Kudanzaka and we've turned into Yasukuni Shrine. Ahead of us we can see a huge torii gate built in steel in fact. This was the largest in Japan when it was erected in 1921. This one is from the 1970s. We're going under it and we're going to keep going straight past a whole series of memorials and monuments to Japan's modern wars. On our right, we've got the Hitachi Maru Memorial. This was three transport ships that were sunk in the Russo-Japanese War. And ahead of us, on a tall plinth, we've got a statue to Omura Masujiro. He's the father of the modern army. He came from one of the domains in the southwest who overthrew the shogunate in the middle of the 19th century. And he created the army, modelled on that of the French. He died very quickly after the revolution in 1869. And this statue, the first Western-style bronze statue in Japan, was created in 1893. Then we've got a second torii gate, this one erected in 1887. This was the largest bronze torii in Japan. Then as we pass under this bronze torii, we can see a six meter tall gate made out of cypress ahead of us. Passing under the cypress gate, we can see the third torii, this too made in cypress, this version of it rebuilt in 2006. Passed under the Cypress Gate now, we've turned right just before the last of these three torries. And on our right, we've got a whole grove of cherry trees. They're not quite in blossom yet, we're here in March, and there are other cherry trees elsewhere in the city which have already bloomed. One of them is surrounded by its own special railings. It has its own compound, if you like. This is one of 58 cherry trees throughout the country which are used by the Meteorological Agency to chart the cherry tree front. It's in front of a no stage, which was moved here in 1903. And we've got other animal memorials here about, to horses, to dogs, to pigeons. But we're heading straight to the light grey building in front of us, the Yushu Kan. So we're standing in the portico of the Yushu Kan. This is the museum attached to the shrine. It's been going for a while, and it was renovated in 2002. The story it presents inside about the Asia-Pacific War is a story about Japan in Asia in the first half of the 20th century, not as an imperialist power, but waging a fight for Asia's liberation and Japan's self-defense from the Western allies. 
that too has become a lightning rod for international critics and remains a point of contention today. But it points to the fundamentally ambivalent nature of Imperial Japan, both the place of the emperor in the nation and the place of the nation in the world. We can see that with two statues on either side of the portico. On the right, a statue to a kamikaze pilot who sacrificed himself in the last days of the war, crashing into Allied ships. But on the left, a statue of Justice Pal, the one dissent at the Tokyo war crimes trials. He pointed out that if Japan was to be held accountable for its actions in the war, then the Allies should be held accountable too. That still hasn't happened. The prosecution of war crimes remains a work in progress. So, at the end of this first episode, we're left with an ambivalent conclusion about the place of the palace in the city, about the place of an emperor in a modern nation. In Japan, as in any country, the past is never settled. The work of power is never done. The possibility of a different story is always present. We'll see the same thing in the next episode, where we see how the palace has also been a good neighbor for the institutions of the modern state. We'll start that story down in a valley a couple of kilometers southwest of here, on Benkei-bashi, which spans yet another bit of the moat. We'll see you there. Historicity is written and presented by Angus Lockyer and produced by Yelena Sofronievich. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts.